This is Franchise Today, brought to you by FRM Solutions, providers of the best-in-class software solutions for franchise relationship management. Franchise Today is your destination for weekly information, conversations, and interviews with accomplished industry leaders, all of whom share best practices for sustainable growth and sensible franchising. Here now, your host, Stan Friedman, to kick off this week's podcast. It's Wednesday, August 19th. I'm Stan Friedman, and this is Franchise Today. Before we dive into this week's interview, I want to extend my thanks again to last week's guest, Bruce Melman, founder and CEO of the Washington, D.C.-based government relations firm of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas. Bruce makes his living giving guidance to both Fortune 500 companies and innovative startups about how to navigate the landscape of the body politic. More simply stated, he's a Washington, D.C. lobbyist, and he guides his clients through the swamp, helping them understand, anticipate, and navigate the ever-evolving trends and policy environment likely to impact the global marketplace. Bruce's quarterly updates on political trends are widely read by business leaders and political observers across the country and are frequently covered in the media, including the Washington Post, Axios, Politico, CNN, Fortune, and the Daily Caller. We can now add Franchise Today as well to that list of media. And we have none other than IFA CEO Robert Crisante to thank for putting that together for us. Today, we We'll speak with Alan Young, chairman and partner of Franbridge Capital and founder and owner of multiple businesses that have collectively generated over $300 million in sales. His current portfolio includes Noble Brands, Shelf Genie Franchise Systems, the Outback Guttervac Franchise Systems, Thundervac Technologies, 10X5, GO Logistics, and Cabinet Components Innovations. Together, Alan's companies lead over 500 team members in over 160 locations throughout the U.S. and Canada. Under Allen's leadership, his teams collectively grew to become Inc. 500, Inc. 5000, and Entrepreneur 500 companies. Each company continues to thrive by continuously disrupting their industries with innovative technologies and amazing customer experiences. John Ostensen is Allen's partner in Franbridge, and like Allen, he's the founder and investor in multiple startups of his own, including several in the franchise space. John is also affiliated with Nick Neonakis' franchise consulting company. Together, Alan and John recently brought on an operating partner who just happens to be a good friend and sponsor of this podcast. That would be Christian Pillett, who, like both Alan and John, has multiple business interests himself, in Christian's case, as co-CEO of Transitive. So there you have it. The table is set. And when we return from a quick break, I'll be back in two minutes or less to welcome Alan Young to Franchise Today. Franchise Today will be right back, but first, a word from our sponsors. Hey, Stan Friedman here with a word about Transitive, an amazing marketing platform that actually delivers what others can only imagine, accurate, dependable results that are second to none. All right, without getting too deep into the weeds, Transitive connects franchisees' customer data from all sources providing high-octane fuel for their marketing engines. They then deploy machine learning. Yes, 
Artificial intelligence, which identifies various customer traits and habits, attributes that would otherwise likely go unnoticed, and it segments these customers into groups. This is important because, as we know, not all customers provide your franchisees with equal dollar value. But wouldn't it be great if they could easily identify who's who? Well, that's exactly what Transitive does, and what's more, it then accurately drives the appropriate offers to each of those customer groups, delivering specific personalized messages to each of the group's customers. Just like that, your franchisees are engaged in laser-focused target marketing, delivering them much more bang for the buck. You've got to see it to believe it. So what are you waiting for? Order up a demo today. And tell them I sent you. Find them online at www.transitive.io. That's www.transitive. T R A N S I T I V. dot I O. Alan Young, welcome to Franchise Today. Thanks for having me, Stan. Well, I'm really pleased to have you. Your name keeps popping in different places and in different circles. I think we were talking a little bit a while ago in the green room about how I was just reviewing the common connections that exist, all 400 plus of them between your LinkedIn and mine. And it's always a fun exercise to see how you know somebody and who else they know in common. And you're in all the C-suites and you're in all the private equity places and you're out there with the brokerage network. You're in places with friends that I've had in this industry for a long time. And yet you and I really haven't gotten to know each other. So we're going to remedy that here today. Why don't we start the way I always do? I ask my guests to rewind the tape, if you will. We always say franchising finds us. Why don't you tell the audience how that happened for you? Sure. Yeah. So a little bit of background after I went to college in Virginia, I went to University of Richmond, ended up going in the army. So um, I had an RTC scholarship. So I spent five years on active duty. And when I got off, I stayed in the reserves and ended up starting several small home improvement businesses, uh, local ones that uh, usually got to about a million or two in revenue, and then I would sell them. And I was in the middle of one of them that was about a year old, and I built up to about 25 employees, and things were going great. I'd done over a million revenue my first year. It was very successful, 37% net profit, and I was super happy. I was working 18 hours a day, but I thought that's what you had to do, and sometimes you do to start a business. And I got a small note from the army, a little letter that said, remember you're a reserve officer. And while they stationed me in Hawaii for my active duty, they said they were going to send me to a different beach without any water. So I got deployed to the Middle East and I had about six months to get prepared for that. And I looked at the team that I built and like a lot of young entrepreneurs, I built everything around me. So if you read the E-Myth, I was a technician and I was really doing everything and I had some people doing work, but I couldn't go on a one week vacation without things falling apart. So I knew I couldn't go to the other side of the world for six months and have things go well. So quickly put the business up for sale. A lot of interest, as you can imagine, 37% net profit, over a million in revenue the first year. We're rapidly growing on a hockey stick. And everybody that looked at the business basically said, you're the business. So out of that over a million of revenue, I'd done 900,000 of the sales and home sales of that. And I had 300% turnover from my technicians. It was a heating and air, indoor air quality concept. And they just said, if we take you out of the business, we don't think it's going to make it. So I always ask people a question of with that large profit number in my first year, what multiple do you think I got? And no one's ever gotten it right. The answer is zero. I got an earn out, started six months after they took over the company and it was 
earn out on revenue. And when I deployed, I got a note right after I deployed that they were already out of business. So that was a very difficult lesson for me, super painful, as you can imagine, because you put everything you have into a startup and it just disappeared. But it was a great lesson. And when I came back, right before I left, done a little bit of consulting. As I sold the company, I had about four or five months left. And I did what everyone does when you don't have a job. I went to, at that time, Kinko's um, or FedEx office and got business cards with my name and the word consultant underneath it. So I was doing a little bit of small business consulting. And one of the companies was Shelf Conversions in Richmond, a local business started by Andrew Kerwin. Literally started out of his parents' garage. And at the time, he and his mother were, were running the business with about five or six employees. And it was a custom pull-out shelving concept. And they had brought me in to help them uh, franchise. And I was the one, ironically, that talked them out of franchise because they didn't have any processes, systems that could scale. Uh, they were do doing a very good job with their local operation. So I came up as an alternative with the dealer model. I had some experience with that um, in my other small businesses being a dealer. So I put the plan together for them, which is what they hired me to do. And when I came back from my deployment, I was figuring out what I was going to do next. And I just checked in with them, see how the plan was going. They said, the plan's great. We were just waiting for you to come back and do the plan. So the timing worked out, became a partner in the company with them and started growing the dealer model. We brought on about 30 or 40 dealers in the first six months, a lot of them handyman franchises. And that was going well, but having a dealer model is a little bit like throwing spaghetti up against the wall. So you have to uh, keep throwing it because it keeps falling off. So we started in Richmond. I, I took over the Richmond market on the consumer side, started growing that. And I was basically a dealer and it really helped in selling dealerships. Just like if you own a franchise and you're a franchise development person in that concept, it, it really helped. So I did very well in Richmond, brought on a couple of partners. We opened up Atlanta, Birmingham, Chicago, Milwaukee, and Minneapolis very quickly in about eight or nine month period and we started our centralized call center we put a lot of money into the crm developed our processes just for our own internal dealer system that we were building our corporate market and about a year later i woke up and i was the one that talked about a franchising and i realized all that we had built to do at that time about five million a year in revenue in our own market was what enabled us to scale was very franchisable i looked at the crm system and the centralized call center that we had developed and all the systems and processes and markets marketing and sales training and and decided to franchise it. So ended up uh, raising about half a million in angel investment. We had two angel investors and uh, gave away some equity for that and started franchising in the fall of 2008. And I don't know if you remember what that was like, but it's fairly- Everybody remembers the fall of 2008. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Unless you're a very young millennial, you might not, might not remember it. But that was a very similar time to what we're going through now from an uncertainty standpoint. And another one of my home improvement businesses I started and just right after 9-11. Again, eerily similar in the fact that people weren't traveling. They were spending a lot of time on their homes and home improvement. And that's really how I got in those businesses. But that's a little bit of how I got to uh, into franchise. And so fast forward the tape and help us with the Shelf Genie story and how it progressed and what roles you brought people in to fill to replace yourself sooner than you did the first time so that this business could be scaled and continue to grow. Yeah. So, you know, the fall of 2008 ended up being a fantastic time to franchise, especially in home improvement. Home improvement, we were doing small, affordable upgrades in the home. Our average sales around three or $4,000. That's something that basically 
basically everybody can afford in our target demo, which is baby boomers and seniors. So we did extremely well in the home improvement space during that time. So we were an Inc. 500 company over 2009, 10, 11. So that was fantastic. We grew our franchises. And at times of uncertainty, we had a lot of what I call forced entrepreneurs or displaced executives who had lost their six-figure job and weren't sure if they're going to get another one. And we're looking at their savings saying, I might as well spend it on a business, on a franchise versus having it all kind of go away, being unemployed. So we brought on a lot of franchisees, did really well in the consumer space and grew that business. And about four or five years later, we looked at bringing on another brand, which we did. So we brought in Outback Gutterback as our second brand um, and really started Noble Brands. So we have two brands and then we bought a manufacturing plant to get vertically integrated. We were outsourcing our manufacturing for Shelf Genie at that time and started a logistics company. And we also have 10X5, which is centralized call center marketing that really runs runs the back end for our franchisees. So that's a little bit about what happened over the next 10 years. And replacing myself became more difficult just because we're scaling. So as, you're, as you start to scale, your organizational infrastructure typically has to be updated every couple of years to add in another layer of leadership. So um, I kept replacing myself, but kept in the organization because I was replacing myself with another layer of leadership. And one of the things I, I learned that was really a painful lesson that took me many years to learn, and I probably never really fully mastered it, is I learned, and especially being at home improvement, being in the military, very good at managing a direct team and them having one layer of people that they're managing. But as we kept building an organization where I was leading a leader leadership team who was leading another group of leaders who was creating another group of leaders and then the frontline team, that becomes extremely complex. And leading leaders who are leading other leaders is an extremely complex task that I quite frankly struggle with as we're growing the organization. But two and a half years ago, I finally worked myself out of a job. We promoted our COO, uh, Andy Pittman, to the CEO role, and he's done a fantastic job. He's also a franchisee in, in North Carolina and was able to finally work myself out of a job about 13 or 14 years later. It's quite a feat to be able to do what you just described with leading leaders. It's almost the same problem that many single unit franchisees have when they go for their second, usually their third or more locations because they're no longer operators. Now they're they're actually having to support operators with systems and leadership that they provide to their managers. And literally so many people lose it when they start getting into that multi-unit mindset without understanding that it's a much different thing that you're doing when you're growing and scaling than it is when you're operating. It is. And the uh, the biggest lesson I learned, and it took me a very long time to learn it, because as we were growing, my philosophy was every quarter or so, let's get rid of the bottom 20% of performers. So we did that over and over and over again. And when you get rid of the bottom 20%, which everybody knows who they are, it's typically hard to make that call because they're doing something. They're not doing something that you immediately fire them for, but they're B or C players. And we would replace them and we would bring in a, a better group of people because we knew what we we're looking for as we kept growing. We knew it better and we bring in a better group of people. And then immediately within three months, there's another 20% at the bottom. And then you get rid of those. And ultimately you're having a lot of turnover and that's relatively normal for an organization that was growing. But one of the hard lessons I learned, especially as we're building these layers of leadership, we're typically getting rid of the people on the front line or further down the organizational pyramid. And that's one of the reasons I like a flatter organization. But what the lesson I learned was it's always 
a leadership issue. What I learned was people can do a great job, especially if they're just doing a job, if they have a good leader. And that was the biggest mistake that I made was assuming the leaders were telling me, oh, it's the person that's reporting to me. They're not doing a good job when most of the time it was the leader's issue. And that that also fell into my lap with the, the folks I was leading. So the biggest lesson I learned was it's almost always a leadership issue. There's some outliers out there with performance, with people doing jobs, but typically it's the leader. So when you brought in the second brand, you put the Noble Brands umbrella up shortly thereafter and created all these other operating units that were in support of the two brands that you were functioning with as franchises. Is that right? That's correct. And so how about then the growth of Noble? How did your role change now that you're a portfolio company instead of just a single franchise company? Did you find some changes there too that you had to make and adjustments that you had to make operating the companies and the brands and now having the umbrella company to operate and consider as well? Yeah, I think that adding a second brand is extremely difficult. I think adding the third and the fourth and the fifth from all the CEOs of multi-brand uh, franchises, the, the second one is always the hardest because everyone in that world is all about the first brand. They were hired for that first brand. That's all they do. And especially we bought a license from a franchise in Australia called Gutterback. So we got the U.S. rights to, to Gutterback and we renamed it Outback Gutterback. It's a great brand because everyone loves anything Australian. So we went with the Australian theme. And when we first launched it, we literally had one person in charge of operations. We had the technicians in the field in our first corporate market in Atlanta. But it was literally one cubicle with a sign hanging above it that said Outback Gutterback. And everyone else, about 35, 40 people in the office, were all working for Shelf Genie and told to, hey, we get the second brand. So, you know, the marketing folks were told to spend some time marketing it, the call center folks, all the different support teams, accounting, were told, hey, we've got this new brand, spend time on it. It's really, really difficult to get everyone to focus on the second brand and not have it be a side project. So it took us about a year or two to even launch it as a franchise. And, you know, the, we just never had the right focus on that business. So we added some franchisees and ultimately we just decided that we had a great corporate market in Atlanta and that was going well, but we need to focus. And I think that's always a challenge for businesses. Uh, you want to do a lot of things. There's a lot of opportunities, but sometimes you just need to focus on one thing and do it really well. Alan, who did you reach to in terms of mentorship to help you learn franchising? Because you were actually growing and scaling at the same time as you were learning franchising, weren't you? Yeah, I was learning through uh, the only university that I've ever gotten a, a PhD from, which is the School of Hard Knocks. So I was continuing to learn that way. And there's a group of us, group of franchise CEOs. We started franchising all around the same time, 2007, 2008. All but one of us had used uh, iFranchise Group, Mark Siever and Dave Hood to help us start franchising. And because of that, when you start franchising, you need a lot of vendors. And they recommended a number of vendors that they were using at the time or some of their clients were using. So we would see each other at IFA conference. We'd see each other at broker conferences, different type of things. We kind of run into each other and we get to know each other pretty well because basically we were probably bonding over the vendors that we were frustrated with, which is pretty much all vendors. I think that's a challenge. Vendors are challenged in the franchise world because in most vendor companies, relationships, you're dealing with one corporate team in the franchising space. You work with the franchisor at a high level, but really your clients are 30, 40, 50, 60, 80, 100, 200 franchises that you're all trying to keep happy. Vendors are challenged. We're, as franchisors, we're challenged with vendors because we're really in between the process. So we would get together and just kind of uh, lament on some of our vendor relationships and ultimately decided to start a group. We call it now the Accelerated Franchise Leadership Group. 
We just needed to come up with a name to refer to ourselves internally. But at the time, it was just seven of us. We were all CEOs. Our franchises were about the same size. And we started meeting. We formed a mastermind group, which we now call Forum. We started meeting every quarter for two days. We alternated locations. So one of them is in Canada, Frank Milner with Tudor Doctor, Dave Paskin in One One Mobility in Wilmington, North Carolina. We have Brian Mattingly here in Atlanta with uh, Welcome Matt, Justin Bredeman with Soccer Shots in Pennsylvania. Boris Katnelson was in Denver at the time and Omar with College Honks Hauling Junk so in Tampa. So we would rotate around the different locations every quarter, visit each other's offices, take a tour, and then spend about a day and a half really going through best practices in all the areas that you have to excel in and being a franchisor, we would help each other out, which I think is really unique with that. You know, at, at the end of the day, we all have the same target franchisee. And so when it comes to selling franchises, we're all competitors. People would often look at three of our brands internally, but we all helped each other out uh, with growing and our philosophy with, with franchise candidates is we want the candidate to find the right franchise. So they're looking at Shelf Genie and one-on-one mobility and college hunk selling junk. We all said, let's find the best home form because ultimately that's what franchising is all about. It's a long-term relationship. It's not about signing that agreement and getting the franchise fee. It's about success with that franchisee long-term and bringing in the wrong franchisee that's not a good fit is never a good idea. It causes a lot more pain and agony than, than you could ever, ever get out of that franchise fee to make it worthwhile. I always say that those are down payments on legal fees when you take a check and your inner gut is telling you this is not the right thing to do and you do it anyway. You've just made your Absolutely. down payment on legal. And it's really also the time. We never had a lawsuit in Shelf Genie to date with a franchise candidate because we set expectations up front and we would work with someone if it wasn't a good fit to help them exit with dignity and successfully from the system. But it's a lot of time and effort of coaching and helping them get to that time frame. I could usually see that it wasn't a good fit at least three to six months before the franchisee does because they've got their head down, they're focused on it. And the, the I think the real issue with franchisees that aren't working out in a system, it's first of all, it's nothing to do with them. Every single person we brought in was talented, smart, sharp, successful, and is successful today. Sometimes that system or being a franchisee is just not a good fit. But the real issue is when franchisees aren't doing well, the reason they don't want to exit is because being a franchisee in that system has become their identity. That's who they are, which is a stronger identity than if you have a job working at a company. You're a business owner. This is what you do. This is your business. And I think that's the toughest thing to work out with a franchisee that's not doing well is the fact that their identity is going to change. And just like any other business, you have to be very open with failure and very okay with public failure. So if you apply to law school and you don't get in, no one's got to know about that unless you care to share it. If you start a business, whether it's a franchise or just as an entrepreneur and it fails and you have to walk away from it, it's extremely public. So I think that's the biggest challenge people have with walking away from a business is just that public failure. And I think if you're going to be a business owner, you've just got to deal with that. I've started a lot of businesses and probably have a success rate of about 40%, which I'm very proud of, but that means 60% of the businesses I started did not make it past typically the first year or two. This is some great sage advice and you're dropping some incredible breadcrumbs for this audience, which is why you're here. And I appreciate that very much. And we're only halfway through the conversation, but we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back with Alan Young, we're going to bring us up to date on what's going on with Fran Bridge, his latest undertaking, and how he's really three legs on a stool between being a franchisor, a franchisee, and now private equity. We're going to talk about all of that when we return with Alan Young. Franchise Today will be right back. But first, a word from our sponsors. This portion of Franchise Today is brought to you by Zoracle. 
providers of spot-on profiles, the gold standard of assessment tools that assure you're selecting the right franchisees every time. Unlike DISC or others that simply gauge personality or communication styles, Zoracle's spot-on assessments are all franchise-specific and based upon seven sciences that nail the results each and every time. Your prospects simply answer a few questions online and like magic, Zoracle's algorithms scientifically slice, dice, and analyze their thresholds for risk, their business acumen, and even their propensity for single or multi-unit ownership. Zoracle's spot-on analysis is like having a crystal ball, but there's no hoodoo here. It's all based upon science that flawlessly determines franchisee, franchisor compatibility, and accurately predicts performance. Why don't you schedule a demo today and take a complimentary look and see for yourself. It's the closest thing to a sure thing. Zoracle, spot on assessments, based on science, but delivering results that seem simply magical. Check them out at www.zoracleprofiles.com. And the conversation continues with Alan Young, and we want to talk now about the latest enterprise, which takes you into another stage of growth and development in the franchise world with private equity. So tell us a bit about how Franbridge Capital came to be. Yeah, so after being a franchisor for over a decade, you you typically, as a franchisor, get frustrated with franchisees that aren't following the system. It's always, I continue to be kind of mind-boggling to look at someone who spent over six figures to buy a franchise because of its systems, and then they just don't follow the systems. They want to do it their way. And I would always remind our franchisees they did not buy a Burger King franchise so they can have it their way. They should follow the system. And that's where they spent the money. That's why they came in. And really, in a successful franchise concept, there's so many of them out there. It's a proven model. And literally, all you have to do is follow the system, follow the model. And after over a decade of looking at that and understanding how powerful and and relatively easy it is, so many of the roadblocks have been taken away from all that you have to do if you start a business on your own. And I'd done that so many times and looking at franchising going, so many roadblocks have been cleared and you can literally start sprinting almost from day one where it's a crawl, walk, run in most startups in almost all startups. So after looking at that for over a decade, I became a big fan of owning franchises, franchise location, and started a private equity company where we are focused on buying local franchise concepts in the home improvement space. That's where I have my background, and I know that very well. And so it's a great industry, always has been, and certainly in today's post-COVID world, even better. So this is an interesting spin then on private equity, because this is not private equity as most of us in franchising view it as portfolio companies buying up brands, you're actually buying locations or licenses and agreements to operate brands from franchisors and you're funding that with private equity? That's correct. So how's that working out for you? Uh, It's fantastic. We really have two models where one, we in Atlanta, we have an operating team that operate all of our home improvement brands. So we have three of them right now. We have OxyFresh Carpet Cleaning, Pool Scouts, and Home Clean Heroes and the latter two are owned by Buzz Brands out of Virginia Beach. And as you know, OxyFresh, who started franchising about the same time 
minded. So we've got three amazing brands that we operate. So we have a centralized operating team, leaders in each brand, which really reduces risk because if something happens to one of our brand leaders that doesn't work out or they get another job, we've got a leadership team in place and we can spread that leadership throughout our different brands. And our goal is to add 10 brands in the Atlanta area that we're operating fully and that we fully own. And there's a lot of cross-marketing that we can do. So if you're a Pool Scouts customer, you're going to certainly hear about our home cleaning franchise and our carpet cleaning franchise and the other home improvement concepts. So the cross-marketing and just the, the operation side, uh, there's a lot of synergy that we have from doing that in the Atlanta market. Outside of the Atlanta market, we figured out pretty quick logistically starting up operation teams in different markets where we've got to hop on a plane if there's a problem and get things started. We came up with another model where we invest 49% of the equity into um, a franchise concept with a franchisee. So if you're buying a franchise and it's a $300,000 total investment, we'll invest $149,000 for 49% equity. We do not have a controlling position and that franchisee can grow very rapidly without debt. And I've never been a big fan of being leveraged and certainly not over leveraged. And I like giving away equity because I sleep at night. My balance sheet is super clean. And if you look at this concept that we're doing, if you're looking at buying one territory, you can now buy two territories or three territories because typically it's about double if you buy three because of the synergies and franchising. So you can go from one to three franchise locations and you own half the equity, but you're over twice the size. So there's a lot of great things that come out of that. So you're essentially in a better position than you would be if you didn't take on the equity and you don't have any debt. And we're in a minority position. So we're there to help and we do bring some value add from an experience standpoint as well. So talk some about how you've built the infrastructure, which lessons learned from past experiences, right? You've got a great team of leadership that sits to the left and right of you inside of Franbridge with John and with Christian. So how did that unity come together? Uh, so John and I had hired him uh, in Noble Brand about four or five years ago uh, as a president of one of our units. And Christian and I met through John and Christian's got a great background. He's owned a digital marketing agency that is a vendor to franchisors and franchisees. And he also happened to buy an OxyFresh franchise unit. So really uh, here in Atlanta, he started that operations team. And when we met, he was already thinking down the road and was building a leadership team, a leadership team that, that, that he didn't need at the moment, which I think is great. Anytime you're building a team and you're hiring before you need them with a long-term plan, I think that's always a big part of success. So we started to build that and John and I had already talked about buying franchises and investing in franchises locally. And so the three of us came together as partners because there's a lot to do in a private equity company. You have to raise the money, you have to find deals. And then in our case, we have to operate. So the three of us work in those areas and that's how we met and that's how we operate. So what's on the canvas for the next one to three? Is that too far to look at when we're in this COVID scenario right now? Or is that a fair estimation of time for looking ahead for where you're going to be hitting some milestones and achieving some accomplishments? Yeah. I mean, I always look at, start out with a 10-year audacious plan, and then we always have a three-year and a one-year. And that, I think, especially in COVID, you have to have a really good plan. And being in the military, you always have a plan. And as soon as you start executing on that plan, it always changes because in the military standpoint, the enemy does not play according to your plan. And the business world, the business environment does not play according to your plan. But having a plan and being able to adjust to it is certainly a big key to success. And our three-year plan is to continue in the home improvement space. COVID is actually a positive for the home improvement space. People are staying in their homes and they're not traveling and they're investing in upgrading their homes. So we plan on staying focused. Our pre-COVID plan was home improvement and our post-COVID plan is home improvement. So what do you see if you read the tea leaves now and you're a disruptor and you like to buy and invest in disruption and disruptive 
creative companies. What do you see happening in franchising from where you're sitting, Alan, over the next two or three years? How is this landscape going to be changed, forever changed, by disruption like we've never seen it before? Yeah, I think technology has always been a big part of the landscape prior to COVID, and I think it's just more important than ever. So I've always been a big fan of saying, especially in the last decade, that every company is a technology company that happens to do X, Y, or Z. And I think that shift, it made it to something that you have to do. You don't have technology if you haven't enabled the process. If you haven't made the transaction with a consumer super easy by removing all the barriers to working with their company, and typically that's happening through technology. For example, Pool Scout. There's a lot of cool companies out there, and one of the nice things about home improvement is they're typically very fragmented industries with very low bars. So pool cleaning companies, they come out, clean your pool, maybe, maybe not, maybe they don't do it well, maybe they don't show up on time, maybe they don't invoice you correctly or on time. And with Pool Scouts, they've invested a lot in, in not only process, but technology. So if you have a pool cleaning coming up, you get a text notification when the technician is en route, when they arrive, when they're done cleaning, get uh, a message with before and after photos of the entire clean and any notes. So it's extremely technology driven. And when you look at the pool cleaning industry and I've got a pool and I've never gotten anything close to that. I've had all the other problems that I listed. It's a huge leg up on the competition and it's really technology driven. There's only so much you can do with, with phone calls and, and emails. I think if you're using mobile, that's one of the things we're shifting to. Um, and all of our home improvement companies, one of the things changes, people don't want to get phone calls. They want to get tech. So we're interacting with our customers the way they want to interact. And a lot of that's just technology driven. So when you look at the market that you're focused on today, being primarily Atlanta for one of these two models, the second form of 49% minority ownership that can be out of Atlanta as well. Is that right? Correct. And really, if you're looking at buying a franchise, you have limited options. You can get a loan, typically an SBA loan. You can use your own money, whether that cash you have in the bank or going out and taking out a home equity line of credit, or you can use your 401k or IRA as a rollover. But all those are debt instruments. So whether you're using your own money or getting debt and personally guaranteeing it, you're using your own money. And if things don't go well, all that money that you put into it goes away. So you're really reducing and mitigating risk in our model. And the way we set it up, we typically are looking people that want to go bigger. So if you can go three times bigger and only give up half the equity, you're in a better spot. So this isn't the right fit for everyone. Some people are very comfortable with that debt or they have a net worth, but they just want to use their own cash. But there's a good percentage of the market that is interested in funding with private equity. And that's just never really been an option for startup franchises. It certainly exists in large multi-unit franchises where private equity goes in and there are $5, $10 million EBITDA multi-unit franchises, but nothing exists that we found on the startup side of things with private equity. So that portion of your business model would be available to franchise prospects anywhere in the country. And the service brands that you're operating, though, your focus is going to remain Atlanta or are you going to branch out beyond Atlanta as well? We're not planning to branching out outside of Atlanta with the units we operate. We're going to use the 49% equity model. But the caveat to that is it's not available to everyone around the country. It's available to everyone around the country that is buying a franchise in one of our approved brands. So we go in and we use item 19s and working with the franchisor to look at all the details of the model, uh, financially plan it out 
And surprisingly, a lot of franchises and the ones that we approve have a 40 or 50% IRR over a five-year period when we model them out. So we not only are approving the model, the financial model, to make sure it gives a good return on investment to our private equity investors, but we also want to look at that model and make sure that we like the franchisor, that we want to have a working relationship with them, and that they like us. Typically, they like us, number one, the Fran Dev guys love it because anything that they can use as a tool in their toolkit to sell franchises, they like that, just like any of the other funding options. But franchisors in particular, we go in as a partner. We're helping them evaluate the franchisee that we're investing in, which is another good data point for them. But we're also, when things don't go well, which is going to happen with a certain percentage, we're banking on a low one with all the risk mitigation we're doing with the model and the franchisee. But when it does happen, you typically see that coming three, six, nine months, or even a year before it happens. So it gives us plenty of runway to work with that franchisee that we've invested in. And ultimately, we can take over that unit and work with the franchisor to find an operator or another franchisee to run it versus the franchisor having to deal with the closure. You know, what I see coming is a lot of consolidation in the years ahead coming out of this crisis. And I think what you've created here is so foundational and you really are going to mitigate the risk of franchise ownership for those doing business with you and through you to the point where it's going to be harder to fail than to succeed, Alan. This is really, really impressive. It's different. And I think the time is exactly right. I think to your point, this is built for a post-COVID era. Alan, I always ask my guests if there are any questions that I didn't ask that they wished I did. And I've just asked you to do that for us. Yeah. You know, I think you touched on it and we talked a little bit about the importance of having men mentors. And I talked about my form that I started about seven years ago. And that's been so instrumental, not only because the, the best practices in franchising that you share and that common interest in learning and growing in the franchise space, but our form and many other forms that are out there, I'm in a group called Young Presidents Organization, which is very similar to Entrepreneurs Organization. They have these forums and it's actually a, a very well proven out format where number one, confidentiality is key. You come into it knowing that anything you share in that group is not going to be shared outside of that meeting. It's a little bit like AA for, for business owners. And it's really critical because the, the saying it's lonely at the top, it is. And you don't have a place to go to share problems in your business because oftentimes you can't share that fear, uncertainty, and doubt with your leadership team and your franchise that you're running. But there's also a personal component to it. So your personal focus on yourself and your family, I think those two legs of the stool on a three-legged stool outside the business side of things are more important because what I've learned is if you don't put your oxygen mask on first and don't take care of yourself, which is entrepreneurs and franchisors, we're really bad at doing that. It really affects the performance of your business. So we focus on the personal side. We share things that are going on with us personally to make sure we're focused on the right areas of our personal development as well as our family. So if you've got a personal problem or a family issue, and it could be anything, the ability to share that with a group and get their feedback on it and get their help in resolving that or dealing with it is amazing and it's such a game changer. So I'd encourage anybody to find a group of folks they can work with. Dave Paskin has been in our group the entire time. He started a company called Zorform, Z-O-R-F-O-R-U-M. And I believe that's his website, Zorform.com. And you can also look him up on LinkedIn, Dave Paskin, P-A-Z-G-A-N. And he started taking our concept and he's starting groups of franchisors in this forum format and enabling people to jump into it with 
without having to start on their own. So we started a group on our own, figured out along the way. But he's using our format that we've been doing for seven years. It's been really critical and instrumental in our growth, both personally and, and professionally. And he's doing that with Branch Azores right now. Alan, you've been extremely generous. You've shared a great deal here today. I wish we had another 40 or 45 minutes to keep going, but we don't. So I've got to ask you to please tell the audience how they can find you, get in touch with you and learn more if they'd like to do so offline. Yeah. So my email is alan.young, A-L-L-A-N at brandbridgecapital.com. And you can also look me up at Alan Young on LinkedIn and find me there. Once again, Alan, I definitely got you on the short list of companies to keep a close eye on. I think that what you're on to is brilliant and the time couldn't be better. Alan Young, thank you again for sharing with us today. Thanks, Dan. Well, I certainly hope you took lots of notes this week as Alan shared a tremendous amount of noteworthy information. I know that I did, and I'm happy to report that Dave Pazgan, founder and CEO of the Zor Forum, which Alan talks so much about, will actually be right here with us next week to share the rest of his story. Until then, please continue doing your part to keep yourselves and those you love and care about safe, and join me in praying for things to continue improving each and every day and for our lives to become a little bit better better with each passing day. Until next week, I'm Stan Friedman wishing you the best, the very best of all things franchising, and Franchise Today is out. Franchise Today is a production of FRM Solutions, providing best-in-class CRM tools to empower relationships with prospective and existing franchisees. No excuses, just solutions. Find them online at frmsolutions.com. Join Stan every Wednesday at noon Eastern for another live episode of Franchise Today. Or, as always, download episodes on demand at blogtalkradio.com or iTunes.